It is so good to be with you all. Uh, it feels like home. Words that I never thought I would say about Mississippi. Uh, being a Michigander, this is about as far as I could go uh, from where I grew up. Uh, and yet this place uh, filled our heart in the uh, churches. Uh, and then we're going to look into Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4 together. That's where we're going to study. Uh, but the ministry moment is about a thing called the Praetorian Project and the Pillar Churches. Uh, I've been in the Marine Corps for 11 years. Um, normally I've got a highly highly motivated haircut, but I've been on a three-month sabbatical for the Marine Corps, and I'm enjoying a taste of civilian life. Um, it's kind of nice, but I'm getting a little bit itchy <laughs> not wearing my camouflage. Uh, I just realized as I was in uh, Pastor Chris's office, he's got a photograph of Pastor Chris, myself, and uh, Adam Bennett when we were ordained, and that was three and a half years ago. Uh, it was the last time that I actually wore a suit in this building, and it was this exact outfit, tie, shirt, <laughs> shoes, belt, and I realized I need to probably expand my wardrobe a little bit, uh, but maybe not because the Marine Corps gives me clothes every day. Um, but the last 11 years, we've noticed in the Marine Corps as God has moved us around uh, that it can be really challenging to find a church family where the gospel is being preached and lived out every single day. And by God's grace, he gave us this church uh, while we were here. Um, but military bases and Marine Corps bases maybe in particular are not really known for their church life, uh, more for like tattoo parlors and used car sales, uh, but not churches. And so there are others in the Marine Corps community, particularly around Quantico several years ago, which is the headquarters of the Marine Corps, that noticed that same thing. And they decided to begin a church planning effort near Marine Corps bases to make sure the gospel was going forth to the Marine Corps uh, and the military around the world at large, and they called it the Praetorian Project. And for those of you who know Philippians, uh, it's named after the Praetorian Guard in Philippians chapter 1, uh, and it's an elite group of Roman soldiers who watched over Caesar and his household, the Praetorian Guard. So while Paul was under house arrest in Rome when he wrote that letter to the church in Philippi, the Praetorian Guard watched over him, and Paul preached to those soldiers uh, that were watching him, and many of those accepted Christ. History tells us that when some of those soldiers left the Praetorian Guard after their 16-year tour, they returned to their homes around the empire and began preaching the gospel and establishing churches in their homes and their hometowns. And so the goal of the Praetorian Project is very much the same, that we would make disciples of Marines and their families at churches planted near Marine Corps bases, and then as the Marine Corps sends us out uh, around the world and eventually to our homes, that we'll make disciples there as well. The Praetorian Project now has eight churches planted outside of Marine Corps and Army bases. Uh, the, the churches, all of them are called Pillar, so Pillar Church of whatever city. And uh, by God's grace, I was allowed to be a part of planting when we left here and went back to the, the desert in California to plant the Pillar Church of 29 Palms. And I served there as a pastor for a year and a half. So even though the government doesn't recognize uh, that, that work, I'm actually a full-time missionary on the Marine Corps payroll. Um, but seriously, we should be using our professional efforts, you know, wherever we go for the glory of God uh, to make Christ known. And uh, I've realized that it is good to serve my country, but it is a far better thing to serve my king. And so when you think of the military or when you think of our family, uh, I just ask you to pray for the Praetorian Project, uh, pray for the pillar churches. Um, God is using those churches powerfully to make himself known in an environment that's sometimes hostile to the gospel. And God is making disciples through those churches, uh, and it's been really an awesome thing to see. So I appreciate your love for me and my family, your continued prayer for us. Uh, I ask that you pray more specifically now for us and about those churches that God has allowed us to be a part of. Um, and this, this church family in particular, you know, just kind of help you understand, you guys are really pivotal in helping me personally understand and my wife 
what it means to be a disciple and to make disciples. This is the first church in our, in our collective experience, my wife and I, having grown up in the, in the church our whole lives. You know, we moved here when we were 32 years of age, and um, her dad was a pastor, my dad was an elder, you know, at my church. Um, and this is the first church that ever discipled us, truly discipled us. Uh, Chris King and Michael Benson in particular were, were teaching me and encouraging me and my family and helped us grow in the Lord. And so um, for you, brother, uh, and Michael, you dear brother, and for all of you, we are eternally grateful and we will love you forever and look forward to spending eternity uh, in thankfulness to our King for what you did uh, on his behalf for me. And that's also why I want to look into Philippians together. Uh, so if you have been um, opening your Bibles, you know, turn to Philippians 2. Because as Paul writes this church in Philippi, he's writing to a church that has lived the Christian life well. Uh, they are a commendable church body, and they've done it with great unity. Unity of effort, unity of heart. And he emphasizes this message of unity in Philippians 2, telling the church to be the people that are marked by unity and humility. Because he makes it clear these attitudes, these traits, are not of our own doing. They're not of the church's doing. These are things instead that we take as a response to our identity in Christ. Our identity in Christ enables us and it empowers us to partake in unity that we share with him and that he shares with the Father and the Spirit. And it's marked by and tied to the humility that he showed, Christ himself showed, in laying down his life. And so today, as we look at Paul's message to the church in Philippi 1,900 years ago, that's going to be the message that we hear today also. The message is still the same. The application is very direct. We need to humble ourselves individually and in so doing, unify the church. And that's going to be my encouragement to you, that you would humble yourselves daily in this body of believers and continue to unify this church. So let's see how Paul really expresses that message. Uh, like I said, Philippians chapter 2, uh, and as you're turning there, if you're not there already, I'm going to give you a little bit of background on Philippi and on Paul's work there. He began his second missionary journey in 50 AD in the city of Antioch, Syria, which is a city that still exists today. Uh, it's on the far eastern end of the Mediterranean, just north of Israel. The apostles in Syria blessed Paul and sent him north through modern-day Turkey across the Dardanelles, uh, which is a narrow waterway that connects the Mediterranean to inland seas. It's also known as the Hellespont. And into northeast Greece, which is an area called Macedonia. And one of the first places he stopped in Macedonia was a prosperous Roman colony known for trade, primarily, called Philippi. You can read about Paul's time there in Acts, which is Luke's historical record of the early establishment of the church. But the short version is that as soon as he got there, he started preaching the gospel. And the first person he met was Lydia, who heard the gospel from Paul and accepted Christ as her Savior, recognizing her sinfulness. And then, by God's grace, Acts 16 tells us the rest of her adult household also accepted Christ. They were baptized, and then immediately afterward, the city arrested Paul and Silas and threw them in prison. But while in prison, there's an earthquake. Prison collapsed. You probably remember that song from when you were in grade school, Sunday school class. And it created an opportunity for Paul and Silas to run away along with the other prisoners, but they did not. Instead, they remained in order to protect the jailer. And then as a result, we were able to preach the gospel to that man. He accepted Christ based on their testimony of faithfulness. And then again, his entire adult family. That group, Lydia and her household, the jailer and his household, they formed the nucleus of the church in Philippi. It grew into a fruitful and God-honoring body of believers. We see that in the first chapter of Philippians a group that supported Paul while he was in prison in Rome, both through prayer and financially. And so he writes this letter to the church of Philippi while in Rome under house arrest. Remember the Praetorian Guard? 
And Paul speaks about how they supported him during this imprisonment. Because even though he's in prison, Paul's writing this joyful letter to this church, and he's encouraging them to continue doing well. And he's exhorting them to remain unified, a unity they're already displaying, but to maintain that unity in the face of some challenges. So let's look at that together. Please follow me, and I'm going to actually read, uh, beginning a little bit, and at the end of chapter 1 through Philippians 2, verse 4. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any, participa- any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's important as we read these words to remember that Paul is writing this letter to friends, people that he personally knew and had spent time with, he'd shared the gospel with, people that he knew very well. They were brothers and sisters in Christ. And he wrote this letter in Greek to people that read and spoke Greek as their common everyday language. Sometimes I think I forget the personality and the immediacy of the Bible. These are handwritten letters that are being sent from a brother in Christ to brothers and sisters in Christ. We probably don't realize a lot of times how effective this message would have felt being heard by that audience. So I'm going to read Philippians 1, 29 through 2, 4 again, but I'm going to use more conversational uh, language translation. So listen just to this briefly. As a favor, God has given you belief in Christ and salvation in Christ. He has also given you the opportunity to experience strong emotions, challenges, and suffering for the name of Christ. These challenges are the same ones that I've experienced as I preach the gospel. And you join me in this work so that we are both being attacked for our faithfulness. Because of this mutual identity, consider the comfort that we have in Christ, the peace that comes from true love, the heartfelt shared care and grace that we maintain. It will make me feel as though my work has been completed in your church if you would bind your hearts and minds totally together. Be truly humble, never placing your needs or interests over those of someone else. What Paul is seeking to do is trying to shape the way the church views itself and it views other people, especially people within the church. And as we see in the first chapter of Philippians, we know this church is marked by love and care for one another, and they have a strong corporate identity. They're not split. They're not divided. They're not selfish. They know and love each other, and they understand the work God has given them to do. In the first chapter, Paul thanks them for how they have personally sacrificed to support him in his ministry and in his imprisonment. They've partnered with Paul in the gospel from the very first day of their salvation and to the point when he writes to them. But it's at this point in the letter, in chapter 2, that he encourages and exhorts them to reflect on what Christ has done and to further develop their unity. And he wants them to develop their unity in a really interesting way. He wants them to individually and corporately humble themselves. I don't necessarily draw that link. 
I don't immediately think, hey, we need to be unified, you know, in spirit. We need to be unified in vision. So the way I'm going to do that is humble myself. I don't get there naturally. And so in that respect, I'm thankful for Scripture, which tells me the real way that we can unify ourselves. Because this is not a human endeavor. This is not human wisdom that's being applied. This is from God through Paul to the church. Because this unity and humility will come through Christ. And the way that it comes about is important. Verse 1 of chapter 2 starts with so, which means that the thing Paul is about to say is a direct result of what Paul has just said. And what he said in Philippians 1.29 is interesting. Listen again. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. The word granted there, the original word that's used, can be interpreted as given a kindness. I think we all agree that salvation is a kindness. I certainly feel that. I don't agree necessarily that suffering is a kindness. That's not something that I've ever felt, you know, in my own heart. But Paul says that it is, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that the church has been given suffering as a kindness. And what's interesting is that this is not unique to Paul. This theme exists everywhere else in Scripture, frankly. And I think a lot of times we can gloss over that. Because the Bible tells us that suffering is confirmation of our calling. It confirms in your heart and in your life that you are, in fact, one of God's own. James, Christ's half-brother, wrote a letter to the churches, and he opens with a theme, because in James 1, verse 2, he says, Be joyful, brothers and sisters, when troubles come your way, for you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. God gives us trials to grow us, to prove us, to prove to us that we are one of his children. Hebrews tells us something very similar. And this confirms the work that God is doing in our lives, and it prepares us for future work, frankly. It's one of the things he uses to equip us. And Paul tells us that the church in Philippi is part of this work in the conflict that Paul has been involved in and that the church is involved in. They're both tied to this same work and they're both feeling that conflict. And what is that conflict? It is the preaching of the gospel and the living out of the gospel. Because it was then and is still now offensive to the world. So when Paul says the church has been granted salvation and suffering in Christ, he's reminding them of their shared identity in Christ. Paul has identity in Christ. The church has identity in Christ. It's Christ that unifies them as a church and as people who are sharing in the same work that Paul is doing, the work of being the church, of being God's people, of living out and preaching the gospel. And he's doing this to remind them of something very important, to point them towards the critical truth he discusses in chapter 2. Paul wants his church to remain unified. Paul cares deeply for their identity and what it shows the world around them in Philippi. Because frankly, being in the church is hard. There are people in the church, there are people outside who oppose the church daily. And because suffering comes through trial and trials can cause harm and damage, and that is hard. And even though the church in Philippi was a healthy church, they had struggles, like all churches do, like all families do. In Philippians 4, Paul talks about that briefly when he begs two members of the church to stop fighting and agree in the Lord. He calls them out by name because he's so concerned. And he tells the church to get involved in their dispute and to make sure that they're caring for each other and they're resolving this conflict. So when he tells the church to be unified, it's for a reason. It's not accidental. But it's not only be unified, it is also be humble. 
And he doesn't only tell them, just be humble, he challenges them to consider this truth through a series of what are essentially rhetorical questions or statements. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from love, if any participation in the Spirit, if any affection and sympathy, make my joy complete. These rhetorical statements are saying something conditional that is commonly understood to be absolute. We see it as like a series of questions with known answers. It's a device that Paul uses when he writes. Christ used it sometimes as well. Because rhetorical questions have a way of showing us things that are true in like a powerful kind of aha moment type of way. So when Paul first asked the church, is there any encouragement in Christ? The answer is, yeah, obviously, right? Of course there's encouragement in Christ. Matthew 14 gives us an awesome example of this. In Matthew 14, Christ is preaching and it gets late. So he makes the apostles get in a boat and go across the Sea of Galilee while he goes to pray and spend time with his father. When he's done praying, the apostles are sailing through some rough waters. A storm has kind of popped up. And so Christ goes and walks out across the, the uh, sea to meet them on the other side and then ends up going by the boat. And in Matthew 14, 26, we see that when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost, and cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, be encouraged, it's me, don't be afraid. When Christ told the apostles sitting in this boat in the middle of a storm as he is standing on the sea to be encouraged, one of them actually did. You probably remember who it was that took some courage, and that's Peter. It's always Peter. Peter locks eyes on Christ. He takes courage from Christ's physical example before him, and he steps out on the boat in faith, stepped out of the boat onto the water in faith. And as he's walking towards Christ across the surface of the sea, he is holding on to the courage that he has in Christ, the courage that Christ had given him by personal example up until the point when he took his eyes off of Christ. He stopped having courage in Christ and he started seeing his circumstances and letting that dictate how he felt and how he behaved. And he focused on his fear. And he immediately began to sink. And Peter in that moment failed because his fear became greater than his courage. Courage that was readily available to him because he could literally just look at Christ and take courage from Christ. Because Christ brings courage. He is an encourager. And so to Paul's rhetorical question, is there encouragement in Christ, the church in Philippi would have said emphatically, yes, there is encouragement in Christ. So then he asked them, is there comfort in love? And again, it's a pretty obvious question, but let's look at it. Aside from remembering the relationships with people you love, which is the first thing I think about when someone asks me that question, is there comfort in love? Yeah, my wife comforts me all the time. I'm comforted by my love for my wife and her, life, her love for me. But let's consider God. The Apostle John writes in 1 John 4.16 that we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. John in his gospel wrote the verse in chapter 3, verse 16. It's probably the most well-known in the entire Bible. God so loved the world that he sent his son. So yeah, God is love, no question. He is the source of love, the fount of love, the place from which all other love can possibly come. And in 2 Corinthians 1, 3, Paul opens his letter to the church in Corinth and saying, Blessed be God, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so we may be able to comfort those who are in affliction. Love comes from God. Comfort comes from God. He's a source of both. So yeah, there's comfort in love because they find their origin in a holy God. 
So then Paul asks them, is there fellowship in the spirit? Is there affection in the church? And this is a church that is already supporting one another and loving one another and supporting Paul from afar. So yes, the church says yes, a thousand times yes, Paul. When I hear that read to me, sitting in the church, Paul's words to myself as a member of the church in Philippi, I say, yes, Paul, there's comfort and affection in this church. It's one of the things that marks it from the very first days. And it didn't just mark Philippi, it marked the very first church. The gathering together of believers in Acts 2, Peter preaches a powerful message of sin and repentance and Christ's salvation to the Jews gathered in Jerusalem. And 3,000 respond to that call in their hearts by holy God. And they fall in worship and repent of their sins and they are joined together in the very first church. And Acts 2 tells us that they are gathered together daily, hearing the preaching of the apostles, breaking bread in their homes, singing songs and spiritual psalms, and they're fellowshipping together. And the joy of their fellowship is so obvious that it goes out across all Jerusalem. And day by day, the Lord adds to their numbers. The church in Jerusalem, the church and Philippi is unified in spirit and fellowship with mutual affection for one another. In this letter, Paul commends the church in Philippi for their fellowship because they've been his partners in the gospel. They've been concerned about him. They care deeply for each other. So as a church, they can say many, many, many times over, yes, yes, Paul, to these four questions. And so as they're hearing this read for the first time, they're learning something about themselves. They're learning something about holy God. And you would think perhaps at that point that Paul might close the letter with like a pat on the back and an attaboy. Like, you guys are doing great. I'm so excited for you. We can say yes to all these things. That is not what he does. Instead, he gives them an exhortation, a challenge. He says, with those things being true about you as a church, church in Philippi, you need to be unified and you need to be humble. Because a lot of times when someone tells us something nice about ourselves, it can be easy to feel like, well, hey, I got things going pretty good. Work is done. Appreciate the thumbs up. So what Paul says is be unified and be humble and says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. That's four more statements in one about unity now. Be of the same mind, have the same love, be in full accord, be of one mind. And why? Why? With a church that is doing so great, would Paul have to write this? Because despite our best efforts, disunity will come upon the best churches, the closest families, the greatest friendships, the strongest marriages. And disunity happens not because we seek disunity, but rather because we don't seek unity. J.C. Ryle was an evangelical minister in the Church of England in the early 1800s, and he wrote some incredibly gospel-centered books. And one of them he says, Believe me, you cannot stand still in the affairs of your souls. Habits of good or evil are daily strengthening in your hearts. Every day you are either getting nearer to God or further off. There's a famous football coach from the great state of Michigan who once said, Either day you're either getting better or you're getting worse. There is no staying the same. Paul understood this concept long before the first football was ever thrown, long before J.C. Ryle ever preached his first sermon. If you're not striving for unity, we will find ourselves growing apart. And why? Because every day you're either getting nearer to God or further off. So we can recognize the importance of unity, but when Paul asks this church to be unified, 
in heart and mind. The obvious question then is how? How am I supposed to do this thing? If this is so important, Paul, what am I supposed to do about it? What is the action that I take as one who wants to be responsible to produce fruits of righteousness? So Paul answers that question as well, and here's what he says. The unity will come as we individually and corporately humble ourselves. And according to Paul, this has three elements. Humility in Christ, humility in thought, and humility in action. Three ways that we unify ourselves as a church, a church corporately in America, a church here in Gulfport, Mississippi, a church in Twenty Palms, California, a church in Philippi, Macedonia. We take on humility in Christ, humility in thought, and humility in action. And humility in Christ must be our starting point, as in all things in the Christian walk. The reason Paul can call this church to humility, the church in Philippi, is because Christ has already displayed this. The church in Philippi can take courage from Christ's example, knowing they are suffering for Christ's sake, just as Christ suffered for their sake. If you remember in the garden, prior to his arrest and crucifixion, perhaps one of the saddest moments in history, Christ was suffering in his body and in his spirit. He's praying to his Father, very much not wanting to receive the wrath of God. As he is praying, he is sweating drops of blood. I can't even conceive of what the, to feel the heartbreak so intently in my soul that blood would come out of my skin. Christ did not want to receive the wrath of God for the punishment of the sins of mankind. He was in anguish just thinking about that. Father, if there is any other way than the cup of wrath, let's do that. Totally reasonable prayer. God's wrath is a terror. It is a harrowing. It is a horror. We're actually not capable of understanding God's wrath. We can see a little bit from history what that might look like, but Christ understood it intimately. He saw the wrath of God poured out on Sodom and Gomorrah. He saw God's wrath against Pharaoh in Egypt. He saw the wrath of God against the Israelites for their disobedience and their idolatry. And Christ did not want that. He wanted a different route. Totally normal human reaction. In fact, in some ways, it's a confirmation for us that God himself took on flesh and became fully human in some way we will never truly understand because that is the human response. Father, if there is any other way. But you remember what he said after that? Not my will, but yours. Christ humbled himself. He submitted himself to the Father's will and that the most brittle and painful of moments. He said, it is far better to execute the will of God than to choose the easier path, than to give in to the human emotion, than to do the reasonable thing. And that's why Paul writes about Christ's humility when he's challenging the church. He writes a few verses later in Philippians that Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped after, a thing to be held onto but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. He was found in human form, 
being humbled by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and frankly, thank God. Because if it was not for that, I, Rob Wallace, your brother in Christ, would be dead in my sins. And probably, quite frankly, physically dead on this earth already. The path that was walking prior to Christ saving my life was one that led to my immediate physical death. Christ's humility, his willingness to go the way marked out by Father God is the strongest example to us how we must humble ourselves as well. Trusting God's will, humbly submitting to God's intentions for our lives. And it's following Christ's example of humility that allows us to engage the other two elements of humility that Paul walks out for us, which is humility in thought and humility in action. If we are not humble in Christ, submitted to him, recognizing his example, taking that on for ourselves, we will never be able to go the next measure, which is changing the way that we think and changing the way that we behave. When Paul calls the church humility and thought, he says, don't do anything from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Rivalry and conceit are things that take place in the mind before they ever take place in the body. Rivalry is this mercenary self-interest focused on elevating yourself at the cost of others, getting whatever I can regardless of who's harmed or even particularly at the cost of somebody else. Rivalry requires that somebody else loses so that I can gain. It is truly a hell-bent interest in forcing people to support your ego no matter what it costs them or anyone else. And rivalry, rivalry exists in all of our hearts. It certainly exists in my heart. I guess I can't speak for you. I'm not convinced it can ever be totally eradicated this side of heaven in my life. But it can be badly damaged, beat down, suppressed by the Holy Spirit. And you know how? You know what he uses to do that in our lives? Humility. When you count others as more significant than yourself, it's impossible to harm them intentionally. You just can't do it. When you count others as more significant to yourself, it's impossible to force them into serving your ego because your ego is not the most important thing. Their wellness is. But when rivalry runs unchecked, it immediately and comprehensively destroys unity. Rivalry is the enemy of any and every church, of any and every partnership, fellowship, relationship. When we're striving constantly to get what we want, it always costs somebody else. I've been told so many times, it's amazing what you can accomplish when you don't care who gets the credit. And in the church, we're supposed to be serving each other in a way that no one ever knows who gets the credit. Rivalry must be defeated through humility. And conceit is similar to rivalry. They're brothers. They share the same parent of pride. But where rivalry builds up an ego by using or suppressing other people, conceit builds up ego through empty pride and personal delusions of grandeur. Conceit is the foolish idea that is based on nothing and comes to nothing. The facts of reality, the input of others, are all cast aside in this reckless effort to make myself look good and feel good in the eyes of the world. But humility tears down conceit. Humility is ending the destructive cycle of finding new ways to make people seem less than I am, to make myself seem elevated. C.S. Lewis famously said that humility is not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of, other, of ourselves less. 
I don't think less of myself. I still think of myself the way that Christ does. I just think of myself less. Humility is a form of self-forgetfulness instead of self-fixation. So in order to be fixated less on ourselves, Paul tells us that we need to think about other people more. If you're thinking about other people more, you can't think about yourself more. If I've got 16,000 thoughts in a day and I spend 15,000 of them thinking about other people, I only lose 1,000 for myself. But if I only think about other people 2,000 times, that's 14,000 times I can think about myself. I'm not very good at math. I'm pretty sure that's right, though. If you're looking out for other people, you're not only looking out for what's good for you, right? You're putting their interests above your own. It's literally what Paul says. And he repeats the call when he tells the church they need to not only care for their own interests, but also look out for the interests of other people. It's a thing that he is adding on to them, an obligation that they have that stems from their primary obligation to Christ, but also the way in which a person takes care of their own self. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 5 when he tells husbands to care for their wives the way they care for their own bodies. And that is actually the third way that humility brings about unity. First through Christ, second through our thoughts, and then third and lastly through our actions. When I focus on the needs and interests of other people inside my own head and my thought life, and when I seek to meet them, I'm then reinforcing the attitude I'm supposed to have. My actions are matching what I value, what I think about. And what's interesting is these these two things always logically follow one another. Um, I'm from Michigan, my home state, greatest state in the Union. Uh, But when I was stationed here with the Seabees, I worked with a Marine from Alabama who loves the University of Alabama football team. Roll Tide. And even though I don't particularly care for football personally, it wasn't the sport that I grew up playing, um, I really love this Marine brother. His name's Ricky Korn. It's actually Ricky Hayes Korn III. He's got a great name. He's a dear, dear friend, a dear brother, and I, I really love him to death. And we loved having Ricky at our home. Uh, his, his family lived in uh, Alabama, and so he would go home on the weekends, and during the week we'd have him at the house quite a bit for dinner. And so I spent a lot of time with Ricky you know, at my house. And so as a result, during the fall, I would start to follow and watch Alabama football with Ricky because he loved him so much. So I watched their games, and I would talk about how the team was doing with Ricky. And believe it or not, even though football was not the sport I grew up watching, I grew up watching soccer mostly in the World Cup, I actually started to like the game of football. Which I know this is probably not the right place to say it, but I, I didn't like football at all, to be totally transparent. The football team were my enemies in high school. Those guys were not nice to me, and they ruined my soccer field, and so we were not friends. And so the fact that I started to really enjoy watching football with Ricky says a lot about how much I loved Ricky. In fact, I've even taken my sons to watch a football game, to watch an Alabama football game at someone else's house one time. I mean, like, I'm invested at this point. But because of Ricky, this thing that I was putting my time and my energy into became something that I started to value, which I would not have normally valued. And it works in reverse. I never cared about football, but because I started spending time on football, I began to care about football. So if we put our value in something, we will give it our time and energy as well. Christ taught this very idea to the apostles in Matthew 6.21. And he said, where you put your money, there your heart will follow. If you start putting a lot of money and interest in mutual funds in the stock market, you're going to start paying attention to the stock market. If you start putting a lot of time and energy into watching football, you're going to care about football. If you put a lot of time and energy into serving other people in humility, you will be humble. So while Paul is telling the church to unify, 
and to do this through humility, he shows them the pathway to achieving that work in their hearts and in their lives. He reminds them of their shared identity in Christ. He reminds them how they share the work of Christ in the church. He reminds them that the, the courage you can take from Christ, from his example, from the salvation that he has brought to you through his sacrifice. He reminds them of the love that comes, the comfort that then arrives because of love, the participation in the spirit, the sympathy and affection that we gain in the church body. And with all that in mind, he says, be unified. And to gain and maintain your unity, humble yourselves and serve each other. If you're wondering how this applies today, I encourage you to look around for a minute. Just take a second and look to your left and look to your right and make eye contact with a brother or sister in this church, someone that you know and love. For many of you, these are probably people that you are not naturally inclined to hang out with. And by that I mean that if you were not in this church family with them, you probably wouldn't have met them and spent time with them somewhere else in the rest of your life. Because we have different lives. Different jobs, different backgrounds, different responsibilities, different neighborhoods. And those things pull us in different directions and create different demands on our lives. And that's fine. But those can also be opportunities for disunity. But we, all of us here, who have cast themselves on Christ and repented of their sin and taken on his identity, we have that key unifying element, our identity in Christ. And that thing above and beyond all other things separates us from the world and unifies us and binds us to each other. We who have cast ourselves on Christ are a new creation. We are his disciples. And as disciples, we must take on his identity. And we need to nurture that shared identity. We need to care for and encourage one another meet each other in our times of suffering and trial and hardship and affliction and bear one another's burdens. And the only way you can do that is if you know about them. And the only way people can know about them is if we are vulnerable with each other and we confess to each other, I am having a hard time. I am hurting. I'm broken. My job isn't what I want it to be. My marriage is going through a struggle. My kids are just not having a great year in school. I've got sin in my life. Please love me. Encourage me. And it takes more than just one person. We've got to do it together. It's the message of Paul to the church 1,900 years ago, and it's the message to the church today. Because we are, if we are not working toward unity, we will find that disunity has already occurred. And since Paul is telling us that humility is the best way toward unity, we must necessarily ask ourselves, well, how then do I generate humility in my life? How do I move towards this thing that I know is good, that the Bible is telling me I must do? How do I start doing what Paul is requiring of the church in Philippi? And here's my encouragement to you. Again, I encourage you just to look around and consider your brothers and sisters here in this church. You very likely know right now someone in this church that is having a difficult season in life. Either because of sin or suffering or hardship or job loss or the death of a loved one or depression 
or the, the myriad ways that sin has affected this world and made things hard. I encourage you just to help make it easier. To come alongside that brother and sister and help share that burden any way you can. And you know what? Sometimes that is nothing more than sitting down at their house and just listening to them pour out their heart before God to someone that loves them. To be a part of the trial that they are walking through. You're going to find you cannot help but develop humility in your heart as you practice serving other people. As you rid yourself of rivalry, rid your life of conceit. If instead we humble ourselves like Christ and accept God's will, we will find that we are striving towards humility. But it starts with Christ. And if your identity is not in Christ, you're never going to be able to destroy rivalry conceit in your life. So if if you're wondering right now why this is all such a big deal to Paul and to me, I encourage you to ask yourself if you've ever recognized that your life is broken by sin. If you've ever really plumbed the depths of your soul and recognized that it is marked and in a lot of ways just defined by sinfulness and that you require salvation. Because if you have not, none of this really makes sense. The Bible, the world, doesn't really make sense, frankly, until you recognize that God exists, that he created humanity in order to worship him, that he intended a relationship with us, and that we brought sin into the world and broke that relationship. And until that is something that you recognize for yourself, and that then the Son of God came to earth and became a man specifically to eradicate our sinfulness and restore your relationship with God, until you recognize that, and you live in that, you will never be able to have the unity that Paul is preaching to us here. And if that's something that you need to talk about, I encourage you to come find Pastor Chris or Pastor Michael or talk to me afterwards or Pastor David or someone here in this church that you trust, that you know loves the Lord, and allow them to talk you through why that matters in your life. Why that is the single most important thing you could ever possibly do. And for the rest of us, my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, I've got two thoughts in closing. The first is thankfulness. Thank you for loving me so well. December 17th, I think it was, 2013, the first time I got to worship with you. You showed me unity. You lived out for me this passage in Philippians. Thank you for remaining unified in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And secondly, I encourage you and I exhort you, as Paul exhorted the Philippians, to choose lives of humility. Continue to serve one another. Be unified here together. Be unified with other gospel teaching, gospel preaching, gospel living churches in Gulfport and Mississippi and the Gulf Coast. Because Christ tells us in John 14 that the way that we care for each other in the church and love each other in the church is the primary way that people here in Gulfport will see and understand that Christ is real and that Christ has changed our lives. They will see that he is worthy of honor and glory and praise by the way that you live among each other and love each other and submit humbly to one another. They will see that he is worthy and the only one worth following. So please, brothers and sisters, cast yourself on Christ and identify fully and wholly in him. Emulate his humility. Consider others more highly than yourself and find ways to serve them. 
for we as his disciples will be known by our love. Please pray with me. Father God, I thank you that you have set aside this day for us to worship you, that you have established the week that we will begin here worshiping holy God and in that reordering our thoughts to be in line with yours that we can take those thoughts and apply them to our lives and live that out in the next six days throughout the week. I pray, Father God, that we will be a people called to your name who would live out biblical humility before one another, moving daily towards unity instead of allowing passively for disunity to come among us. I thank you, Father God, so much for my brothers and sisters. I love them so dearly. My heart is full with the joy of just being among them and worshiping with them. I ask, Father God, that you would carefully shepherd and guard our hearts as we go out into Gulfport, back to Michigan, California, the places that you have us, so that in those places we would continue to live out the calling of Jesus Christ in our hearts, that would be known to be his disciples, and in so doing, be opening up opportunities for the gospel to be made known to those that are lost and dying. Please, Father God, knit our hearts together in humility and kindness and love for one another so that we, like the church in Philippi, may be commendable. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen.